Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to I Was There, conversations with eyewitnesses to history. I'm Ron Roberson. And I'm Jeff Trujillo. And we're two peas in a podcast. We got a great show lined up for you today. I can't wait, Jeff. I, I, I like Pete Whalen. He's a, an amazing guy. Knows a little bit about everything, doesn't he? He sure does. I am so excited for this interview because I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work with Pete mm -hmm. for about 10 years uh, with the city of El Segundo. And, you know, Pete, not only is a wealth of knowledge, he has great stories. And one of the great stories that he shared with us back when he would tell different stories was his time in Vietnam. Vietnam and yeah. so when we uh, when we started this podcast, he was right at the top of the list of who I wanted to, to have on as a guest and mm -hmm. have him tell some of his stories so we can share it with our listeners. It's, it's going to be a fun show. And the stories are amazing. They're funny. Uh, it's a whole different perspective of what the Vietnam War was all about about we see the battlefield stuff and and all of that and the casualties and that kind of stuff but this is a unique perspective on what was going on during the vietnam war that's right yeah you know in doing some research as you said we know primarily vietnam through what we've seen on television documentaries movies you know and we all know the combat well we, we don't know it because we weren't there but mm -hmm. we see the combat experience but what we don't see are, is the support experience. And so, you know, in, in looking up and reading some of the numbers, you know, the numbers fluctuate, but something like for every uh, combat personnel, there's like eight to 10 support personnel that is also behind the scenes doing the job, supporting them mm -hmm. and making sure they can do their job. So Pete was one of those folks. And so he's going to share with us kind of what his experience of what that was like mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, what Vietnam was like from a behind the scenes kind of a viewpoint. So real, mm -hmm. and again, stories super entertaining. So <laughs> can't wait to hear him share those. And, and, and super exciting it is. And we're going to talk a little later on toward the end of our program about the Saigon Zoo, uh, Vietnam's Other War, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, which is his book. That's right. Pete, a few years ago, wrote a book, uh, The Saigon Zoo. And Good read. Uh, oh my God, uh, when that came out, I read it cover to cover quickly. I mean, and I, you know, you go into it knowing, you know, thinking, okay, my friend wrote a book. I'm going to read it. It'll, it'll probably be okay. This book knocks your socks off. I mean, I couldn't put it down. And I am not a reader, but, um, I, you know, blew through this book. I mean, lots of laugh out loud stories. And mm -hmm. Pete and I have talked someday. I hope it is made into a movie someday because it, it deserves Me it. Me too. It's such a... <laughs> and there he is. And there he is. Let's welcome him. <laughs> so. Welcome, Pete. Thank you, guys. Two old friends. So That's God, right. you put the pressure on me now. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome, Pete. Like Ron said, you know, thanks for coming down. And, you know, just can't wait to get into it. And, and I appreciate you sharing your time with us and willing to tell the stories. And the stories that you have shared over the years, again, it's a perspective that most people don't hear. But, again, every bit as important as the combat folks that, that we see portrayed all the time. Yeah, well, again, most wars... The movies that come out, the books that come out are about combat, which is exciting, harrowing. And the people that are cooks, supply, drive trucks, maintenance people, you're not going to make a movie about them. So you're right. It's six, seven, eight, nine for every one combat person. That's right. And again, most people don't know that because why would they unless they had somebody in there? They had a name for us, by the way, and I won't use the full word, but it was REMFers. <laughs> and if you run into anybody that was in the service and use that, if they don't know what it is, they weren't in Vietnam <laughs> because it stands for Rear Echelon Mother Effer. <laughs> and I've used that many times when I've run into combat guys and I go, 
Don't get upset, but I'm, I'm an R-E-M-F-er. <laughs> go, one of those, huh? And especially as we'll get into later, even more than most people for what I did. There. Well, see, there's a bit of history that we didn't know that there, we've there, learned there we right go. off the bat. So. We were there. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of us, a lot of us. That's right. So, well, let's get started. Um, yeah. Tell us how you got into uh, the war, how you got how you got into well, You know, certain- before we get into nope. that, uh, let, let me ask you, Pete. So this is Eyewitnesses to History. Mm-hmm. Actually, start before the war, you told me a quick little story that didn't know that when you were a kid, you actually touched history. Oh, can, oh, can yeah. you tell us a little right. bit sure. about, about that? I'll try to make it short. But um, anyway, I live in Redondo Beach, California, and less than a mile away is the South Bay Shopping Center, now called the Galleria. When I was in sixth grade, John Kennedy was speaking, doing a last run, quick stop speeches, and the Galler- the uh, South Bay Shopping Center was one of them. My mother unbeknownst to me, came and took me out of school with a friend of mine to go see Kennedy speak. We got there. We were kids, of course. It was mostly adults. It was a school day. And we couldn't see anything. One of us realized that where Kennedy drove in, there was a rope line, not a lot of security. There was um, Secret Service walking with him, but not a ton of them. He came in in a convertible. We asked our parents, our mothers, if we could go over there and stand by the rope line so we could be close when we saw him coming out. Uh-huh. So we went over there, and we were right on the rope line. Nobody was there. A few minutes later, his speech ended, and you could see everybody rush to the rope line because they knew he was going to drive out there. So we grabbed onto the rope. It was a big, thick rope, I remember. We grabbed onto it, and sure enough, the adults came and were pushing. And as the Secret Service came down, they were pushing the people back. And we were holding on tight because we were kids, and we were... <laughs> pushing us into where the car's coming. So we noticed the car coming very slowly, Kennedy standing up in the convertible, and when he got to us, me and Gene, he stopped, he bent over, shook my hand, shook Gene's hand, and then the car sped off. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unfortunately, our mothers didn't know exactly where we were. We told them <laughs> we'd meet him at the car. They didn't see it. And we were like in shock, even though we weren't obviously as kids into the political thing. And when I finally saw our mothers and we told them, they thought we were joking. (laughs) I said, no, mom. When he stopped the car, he shook our hands. I'm never going to wash my hand again. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories because, I mean, I was a big Kennedy fan. We grew up Catholic, and of course, my parents were. He was the first Catholic sure. president. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's right. That's uh, that's an interesting. What story. was what was your impression of him when you saw him? You know, in my child brain, you you know, trying to recall you little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. I remember again, he was standing up, and it. I remember when he bent over. I was a little afraid, and I'm not not rationally afraid, you know. Uh-huh. And then the minute he shook our hand, it was like, oh my god. I mean, I knew it was a big thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I didn't know he wasn't. He, Everybody knew who he was, but he wasn't the iconic figure he became. Sure, sure. So, but yeah, it's real sporadic, but um, I'll never forget that, obviously. Unbelievable. You know? Well, that's, that, that, see, and that right there, there's a great story. And, and isn't it interesting that, you know, the part that he played in, yes, in Vietnam, that Absolutely. further, you know, 10 years, if you were 10 then, nine or 10, right. 10 years down the road, you're sitting in Vietnam wow. largely because of, some of the things he set in motion. Wow. Right. He's um, the one that got us in. I beli- yeah. do believe from reading history books, he would have got, uh, gotten us out before all the, the war. Right. It turned into a war. I think he would have pulled people out. But anyway, yeah. that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, 
So yeah, so let's jump into Vietnam and uh, how you know take us back to. So he had a he had a strange introductory uh, going into the service, right? That I, just cracked me up. Well, you've you've told it, told me the story before, but yeah, why don't you share with us? How yeah. the heck did you land in that situation? Well, I didn't want no part of the military. I was 19 years old, and they had the draft lottery where they picked numbers out, and the common consensus was if you were in the top 100, bye bye, you're going to the jungles of right. Vietnam. If I did learn, everyone was afraid of it then. It wasn't a popular war. Mm -hmm. And all my friends, everybody, their biggest thing, there were very few people that were gung-ho that wanted to go in back for Vietnam. And if you were drafted, you went in for two years. And, the, mm -hmm. again, the word on the street was if you got drafted, you were going to infantry training. Mm -hmm. And if you're infantry, you're going to the jungles and you're going to be fighting. The other option was you could join before you got drafted, go in for three years, so you had another year. However... You got to pick the school you went to. Mm. So, and we'll get into that a little later. But um, my friend John, who lived up the street, and coincidentally, I'll, we'll get to this probably too, we actually met up in Vietnam years later. He called me up and said, hey, Pete, I got something I got to do. I want you to go with me. So I said, okay. He picked me up. He lived right up the street here. Picked me up and started driving. I said, where are we going? He goes, I'm joining the Army. And I thought he was joking, of course. Uh-huh. And he said, no, I'm going in the Army. I go, you're not going in the Army. And he goes, I am. I want you to join them. They have this thing called the buddy plan where you can go. I mean, you're <laughs> out of your mind. So anyway, he's driving down Hawthorne, and we pull in front of the recruiter's office. I think it was Inglewood. might have been Hawthorne. And uh, he says, let's go. And I go, I'm not going in with you. And he goes, come on, go in with me. I said, I'm not going in. So he got up to went in, and I locked the doors. And here comes... But a minute later, here comes a military guy, old, you know, from the recruiter's office, walking towards the car. And I'm going, oh, crap. <laughs> so I locked the doors. <laughs> and he goes, hey, John said, uh, have you come in? We got some lemonade or something like that, you know. And I'm shaking my head. No. No. I'm in the, you know, not the driver's seat. I'm in the shotgun seat. And... He reaches for the door, and I'm thinking, yeah, nice try, and the door opened. Oh, no. <laughs> I forgot. I remembered later his doors were all, all the locks were broken. <laughs> so I go inside. Now I'm really freaking out, and I'm sitting there. There's two guys in there, the guy that came out, the other guy. They're talking to John and this and that, and John's making jokes and laughing. And come on, Pete, buddy plan, and I'm, I'm not saying anything. You know, I'm not saying anything. And so next thing I know, I just want to get out of there. Yeah. One of the sergeants that's not talking to John, the other guy, he's on the phone, and I hear my name. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> How did he know my name? And John's laughing at me. I go, jeez. He told him my name. So he's making a phone call to see my draft status for the next month. He hangs up. He goes, thank you very much. Comes back. In front of me, he goes, Pete, he goes, I got some good news for you. You're not being drafted this month. And I go, he goes, you're going to be drafted next month, <laughs> oh, July. This was June. No. This was June 68. Now I'm like freaking out. I mean, my body is just like, I go, what do you mean? What do you mean? So he starts with his routine. And like I told you before, it's like a used car sales. Back then with Vietnam, they had a quota. They had bonuses mm -hmm. for signing people up. Mm -hmm. And they were going to try everything they could to get their claws in me. And they did. <laughs> um so, long story shorter, he tells me, if you get drafted, you're going to the job, which I had already heard. Uh -huh. He said, first thing, you're going to the infantry training. 
then you're going to be the, on the next plane to Vietnam and you will be in the jungle for one year. He's just, you know, watching me sweat, oh, you know. Yeah. And he goes, we've got a lot of MOSs, military occupational specialties, what we can do. So now my brain is going, okay, what do I do now? I don't want to go. I, I don't want to die in Vietnam. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, crap. I go, what kind of schools? And I'm thinking, okay, if I join, what will keep me out of Vietnam? This is a 19-year-old brain thinking. (laughs) And he gives me this list, and I see teletype operator. (laughs) And I go, what is this? He goes, typing. Do you know how to type? I go, no. He goes, that's okay. We'll teach you how to type. (laughs) I'm thinking, okay, they don't need people to type in Vietnam. You know, they're out in the jungle. (laughs) I mean, they don't need to type. Anyway, like an idiot, I joined for three years, but... I found out years later through many sources that you cannot call up and find out somebody's draft date (laughs) by telling them you're a recruiter somewhere. And I assume that was like the biggest way they got guys like me. Just get them in the office, you know, talk to the boss. And what what year was this, Pete? That was 1968. 68, okay. I went in in uh, the end of August, 68. And then it got sent, you know, off to basic training from there. Right. What, what was basic training like? Hi, yeah, yeah. That was the worst day of my life to this day. A friend of mine dropped me off down on um, Broadway Street. That's where you went in. And I sat back because I was a little early across the street on a wall. And I watched all these other people, one, usually a mother or father, dropping them off. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I mean, you were going to a funeral, you know. Yeah. There was nobody talking, no smiles. All young guys freaked out like me. Yeah. Man. And... The minute you walk through the door, it's like going on another planet. Yeah. I mean, they're going to break you down and teach you the Army way of doing everything. Mm-hmm. They don't care what you do. You can cry, you, whatever you do, you know, you are going to learn the Army way. The minute you walk in the door, they start unleashing the most insultful <laughs> about your no-holds-barred. I mean, your family, your girlfriend. Do you have a girlfriend? Yeah, I screwed her last night. You know? I mean... <laughs> And that just the beginning. I remember one thing. This when I was in this one line, this guy had a um, Doors T-shirt on with Jim Morrison's picture, um, and I remember we're looking at it and thinking, "That's not too smart." <laughs> and sure enough, he was up in the front of the line. I was towards the back. He got to this one station. This sergeant started yelling at him, and he calls two other sergeants out there. Oh no! And they're screaming in his face, and the guy literally goes down to one knee, and he does. He starts – a lot of people started crying back then. I said, <laughs> I'm not going to stop myself. But, yeah, they want that. That's what they yeah, want. Yeah. I mean, Break it down. And when you get when you start crying, you just doubled your verbal. <laughs> <laughs> it was the worst day of my life. So what was your first assignment? So depending on what school you were going to, I was going to Georgia to train to be a teletype operator. And so that's where I met most of the guys I was with through the rest of my their time there. I remember seeing a picture of you with a ginormous computer that, that yeah. you, you showed me. What Was that the teletype? Okay, what was so, that? Yes. What happened was that was the Army's first computer that put out messages on teletypes. Those computers you saw, that was like 12 feet long. Yeah. It was a line of big machines. You know, basically it did one one-thousandth of what a regular computer does now. There were five different sites that were going to put this equipment in in the world. One was Vietnam. And it was supposed to be done in six months. It was never put in. When I got out of the Army in 71, they still, it wasn't working. So we never did it. We got a top secret clearance for that. And I remember friends writing me. And 
the FBI came to them and questioned them about me hmm. because we were going to get the messages in Vietnam that first came across. So it was going to be top secret stuff. We, you had to have a top secret clearance to receive top secret messages, obviously. So that scared me again because I thought, oh, God, if I'm going to have a top <laughs> secret clearance, I must be closer to the fighting, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm just anything that got me closer to the jungle, you know, <laughs> kind of freaked me out. So we were sent to Hawaii to wait for our top secret clearances. So then, of course, all the rumors start flying. We're in Hawaii about a quarter mile from the beach, and weeks go by where there are six, seven weeks and we hear that the DST equipment isn't going to be ready. And we're thinking, oh, my God, we're going to stay in Hawaii. <laughs> we all, five or six of us, rented a little cheap place off the beach. For <laughs> on the weekends, we could go there and just crash and everything. I mean, it was like, I mean, I just, unbelievable. So after about, I think, seven, eight weeks, something like that, it seemed like, yeah, no, no, we're not hearing anything. Of course, they're not telling us anything. And we fall out to the morning. They called it um, police call where you went out and picked up the cigarette butts and, you know, it just... And the guy comes out. It was a real asshole. Oh, can I say that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> podcast. You said did. Anyway, he was a young corporal guy, and he, you know, he was. They didn't like us because we didn't have jobs. We were waiting for our top secret clearance, so we. They did us um, menial jobs, you know, just during the day, but they didn't have enough for us to do. So most of the time, we could sneak to the beach. So one morning, this. Corporal comes out and he says, uh, guys, I got good news for you today. You are going to get to serve the country the way it was meant to be. And he's going on. We're not even paying attention. And he goes, tomorrow morning, you'll be leaving for Vietnam. And we're all going like, oh, come on, dude. And he holds up a paper. We can't see it, of course. He goes, ladies, you are going to Vietnam. He repeated it three times. Oh, no. And all of a sudden, it was like. Holy crap. Because we knew, you know, deep down, we were getting away with murder, you know, our thing. So we ended up in Vietnam, had no clue what we were going to do. We knew we weren't going to do what we were trained for because they didn't have it. And um, we figured we'd do teletype, you know. And off we went to Vietnam. What was your first impression when you landed in Vietnam? It was nice when we landed because flying in, it was nothing but jungle. And as we're getting lower, nothing but I'm going, okay, we're going to be in the jungle. It looks right. All of a sudden, you see Benoit's pretty big air base, you know, and it's outside of Saigon. So we um, we landed there, and it was, again, it was another one of those days, different place, just freaked out about what's going on another, who knows. And that's what the, I mean, of course, that's what the military does, you know, especially back then, mm-hmm. when you had the majority of your workers don't want to be there is not a good situation. And I, we only had time to, we didn't even have time to write our parents or anything. Hmm. So the next time I got a hold of my mother, I said, I'm in. We were able to make phone calls in Benoit. Because last time I talked to her, I was in Hawaii. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she started crying. I bet. I bet. That yeah, and I said, scary. don't worry. It's going to be safe. I didn't know if it was going to be safe. But, you know, yeah. why, why spread the misery, you know? <laughs> yeah, so. And so uh, while you were there, um, did they give you a rifle and ammo and a uh, helmet and all that stuff? Uh, yeah, but we didn't have it with us because I was um, in Saigon. And we actually lived in a hotel, which was really nice. Mm-hmm. Actually, the hotel wasn't bad, but compared to where everybody else was living, we were working. Um, we found out, again, it was we, we had a great assignment. We worked in a warehouse, basically, mm-hmm. at Tonsonute Airport, which is the big airport that the major airport still is. I don't think, I don't know if it's still called Tonsonute, but um, there was a bunch of warehouses there, and we worked in a warehouse, and that's what we, we did. 
We thought we were going back to Hawaii after four months, but we caused so much trouble at the warehouse just screwing around <laughs> that we were, were, we were learning. We should have learned right away. I wish I would have had somebody to tutor me before I went in, you know, that had been in the Army and said, do this, don't do this, you know. <laughs> because the Army basically, and even especially back in the 60s and 70s, you know, everybody didn't have a phone to report abuses, you know. <laughs> right. um, they could do pretty much what you want. We had 50 guys at the warehouse, divided us in um, groups of 10 to 15, and sent us to five different areas in Vietnam. And I, I got the best one. I got lucky. Long Bin, which was the, the headquarters for Vietnam. It's the biggest army base in the world at the time. Anyway, that's how I ended up in Long Bin. So the, the Saigon Zoo, tell us where the name came from. And, and looking back at reading the book, I think that's where it starts, basically. is In the warehouse. In the warehouse. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about how you came up with the Saigon Zoo, the name, and then just uh, what what does that title refer to? I mean, what what are some of the things that that made well, it the zoo that, uh, that when you we would, when we would do stupid pranks and stuff? And there was this one sergeant. We had about eight different sergeants. They were all different. It was like a Hogan's Heroes type thing. You know, <laughs> they were just really characters. Anyway, this one sergeant was just always looked pissed off. He was, but. You know, if he saw us do it, he, he was just fighting it, you know, fighting 50 guys, to not screwing around. We didn't do anything bad, just stupid high school stuff, you know. And he'd get in a confrontation with one of the guys or two of the guys or, for doing something, and he'd storm into the warrant officer's, he, the head officer was a warrant officer, st- storm into his office to complain. You know, you could see him in there ranting and raving. You know, he couldn't hear. They had double-layered walls in there. <laughs> they didn't want us to hear anything. And... uh He'd come out of there, I don't know, and we'd be walking by and go, this effing group of, you know, just go on about us, you know. <laughs> and he kept saying, you know, this zoo, this effing zoo. And one day, one of the guys, Goodman, who was a, he, he died of cancer, one of my friends, he was a hilarious guy. I mean, he could have been a stand-up comic. He heard him one time, he was walking by, and he said, this effing zoo. And he goes, Sergeant, this is a Saigon Zoo. Not the effing zoo, you know, like <laughs> and the sergeant just, you know. So that's where it came from. Always. So after that, we called it the Saigon Zoo. Time to go to the Saigon Zoo, you know. Even the sergeant started calling it Saigon Zoo. So, so that's where it came from. So, what was your daily life like? You know, working in the warehouse and, and okay. Um, yeah. Were there men and women there, or just all men, or what was? Well, it, it was all men. There were no women um, combat. Back then, obviously, right. most of the women in um, Vietnam—I'm guessing at this—were nurses. Mm-hmm. But there were women there that had other jobs. But I was pretty much all male. The warehouse, basically, what the program was—the warehouse—they got boxes from all over Saigon of excess things that people had at, at different bases, like pipes, plugs, you know, different whatever they they didn't need. It came to our warehouse, and then we divided it in, um, into boxes. And then other companies would send, we need 50 of these, and if we had them, we'd ship it. So in the warehouse, we had there were like seven different jobs, and you were assigned a job. We had, I don't remember all of them, forklift drivers. You had packers, unpackers, unpacking the stuff, putting it on the shelves, then packing on the shelves. Maintenance, uh, the guys that were really skilled, of course, were mechanics. Mm-hmm. And so, but we made a, I mean, we just kind of, did what we wanted. We'd switch off. I, I drove forklift. was a fun job, you know, because <laughs> you can be driving a forklift around, and you look like you're doing something, and you're really not. <laughs> you're just driving a slow forklift. The warehouse was giant. 
Uh-huh. And there were rows of boxes, so it was easy to stay out of the way, you know. And and what was Saigon like during that time? Oh, it was a great – Saigon was fun. Ask anybody. Um, it was really safe. I mean, you'd hear occasional gunfire, but I never saw any any incoming. I mean, it was, there was a lot of MPs, obviously, American MPs. Also, a lot of South Vietnamese soldiers there, too. Now, you do. How much interaction did you have with the local population? You know, they're they were, I mean, they were great, great people. I felt so bad. So, I mean, of course, they knew we were preventing them from being wiped, sure. taken over, mm-hmm. communism wiped out. You know, and you know, it was a big opportunity for them. Prostitutes, of course. Um, they sold stuff uh, on the black market on the streets, cheaper than you get in the PX. And so there were the hustles like crazy, you know. And, of course, they were all poor. I mean, very few people had money there. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of poverty uh, in downtown Saigon. But they were my mom. I had one, a mama-san who, when we were in the hotel, we actually had a mama-san assigned who would do our laundry and clean our room, which was great. And we, we really had it good there. We really were fortunate. Again, other guys from you know, listen to this are going, nah, I'll kick that guy's butt <laughs> if I ever see him. Um, but, yeah, we... we you know, I'm not complaining because, you know, I, I had it extremely easy. But my mama son, I would have adopted her if I could. She was so, she called me Rao, Rao. That was a name for mustache because I had a really long mustache. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, they, they all called me Rao, you know. And uh, she would, you know, laugh and stuff. And, you know, I'd learned Vietnamese. from. I didn't learn. I wish I would have taken it more seriously. It would have been nice to know. Mm-hmm. But here's an interesting thing. I swear, and this happens all the time, I can't tell the difference between Chinese, Japanese, Mandarin, you know, or any Asian dialects. But if I hear someone talk, and I usually ask them if I'm in a store or something, I'll say, excuse me, are you Vietnamese? And they'll go, it's something that clicks in my brain. The little roll of the words, just a little different. It's just got a sing-songy thing to it. And I, I swear, I'm 100%. When I've done that to people over the years, and I, it's not a conscious thing, and I bet other people are, are the same like that. You know, you, that were well, you no matter where you were, you had a lot of Vietnamese around because they did the menial jobs. You know, sure, even even in the field, you know, because they made good money doing that, working for the government. Mm-hmm. So, tell us about your lifeguard uh, duties. What were your your duties anyway? Uh, was you finished the warehouse, and then how did you get into the lifeguard duties or whatever it was? Yeah, well, when we went to Long Bend. After the warehouse, after the six months, we got permanent change. We went to Long Bend, and that's where the headquarters were, and they had teletype up there. They needed a lot of people because it was the main head. That's where all the generals were. So they needed a lot of clerical people. So we were going to work in the uh, headquarters, which I did on and off a little bit for different reasons. But um, So the first day, they didn't have anything for us. They'd give us what they called shit details, you know, doing stuff. They'd say, clean this up, do that. We'd have to go out there, and that's what we did all day, basically. And they'd find something for us to do. So this guy that was in charge was a really cool dude. I can't. I wish I remembered his name. When the, the captain wasn't around, he was out or not working that day, he would let us off early. And around Long Bend, it's a giant military base. I mean, the biggest one in the world uh, for, for America at the time. They had 12 above-ground swimming pools, you know, because... Most people work five days, I mean, unless there was something important. But So they had day rooms with ping pong and stuff like that, and they had EM clubs you could drink and things like that. And so uh, this guy said, I'm going to let you off early 
but you got to stay down there till four o'clock. You know, don't want you walking in the company area because people are going to say all oh, those guys are on the details. So he told us, and it was real close to where the our company area was. So we put on a pair of shorts. We had shorts we had brought with us, and went down to the pool. So I'm sitting on the side of the pool, just getting some. There's five or six of us there, and there's four guys. Three of them were lifeguards. They had red trunks on. And another guy at the end of the pool playing cards. And I played a lot of cards, a lot of gambling, poker, spades, hearts, loved hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so they're um, playing cards, and they take a break, and this guy stands up, and he's about 20 feet from me on the end of the pool, and I'm on the side. And he dies in the water, and he comes up, and I'm going, I went to high school with that guy. Oh, my gosh. I, 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 he was older than me, and I didn't know who he was. I knew his name. And he comes by, and I go, I stood up, and he, he's, like, swimming by. And I said, hey, you went to Redondo High, didn't you? And he goes, yeah. He goes, oh. He goes, yeah. And he was two years older than me. I said, yeah. He said, I remember you. I don't know if he did or not. I said, yeah, my brother was two years older than me. He said, I'm Phil Whalen's brother. He goes, oh, yeah, I know Phil. And he said, yeah, I remember you and... I go, what are you guys playing down there? I figured maybe they're playing for money, you know? So um, he goes, yeah, come on down. We're playing. I think they're playing hearts, actually. And uh, so I went down there, and one of the guys in the card game was the head guy of the pool. They had three or four lifeguards at the time. And I said, oh, man. I said, how would you get this job here? And I can't even remember what he told me, you know? And he goes, yeah, I'm leaving in about five weeks. I go, what? You're leaving? I go, Who's taking over for you? And he goes, I don't know. It's not. I go, how? I'm th- my mind is like spinning. You know, how can I get this job? <laughs> is there any way I could get this? And he goes, I don't think so. They must have somebody. I don't know. I said, Well, who would I see? And he goes, You have to see Lieutenant Files. That's his first. I remember it was Files. And he said, He's in B Company. I was in C Company, which was an automatic problem because we had a different. Com- he would have to let me go to be, so I thought, oh, no way. I said, oh, I'll go try. So I go, I go, he goes, he's there today. He goes, I already saw him this morning. So I go, I'm all excited. And I get down, my friends, I'm going, I'm going up to B Company, uh, this Lieutenant Files. This guy's leaving the pool, and they're going, what? I'm going to go and see if I get the job. And they go, you're not going to get a job as a lifeguard. You're going to be at the communication center typing eight hours a day. I go, well, it doesn't hurt. I'm from California, you know, because that was a place to be from in the service from California back then. You can imagine with the, you know, the music in the 60s. Anyway, so I run back, put on my uniform, and go over to B Company. And I walk in, there's this real heavy-duty sergeant sitting at the desk. And I said, yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Private Whalen, and I'd like to talk to Lieutenant Files. He's busy. I go, well, I'd like like to talk to him. I understand there's going to be a job opening at the pool in a few weeks. I met so-and-so, and and then Lieutenant Files, he's in an office down there. I hear him say, send him in, you know, and he goes, go back. So I go back. So I go in there, and he says, you know, and I I said, yeah, I was talking to – so-and-so down at the pool, the lifeguard down there, and he's leaving, right? He goes, yeah, we already got somebody. I go, oh, really? I said, could you use another lifeguard? And I said, I'm a really good swimmer. And I made my swimming motions with my hands like an idiot. You know? <laughs> and he kind of looks at me and shakes his head and goes, do you have a, a, a WSI card, which is water safety instructor? Uh-huh. I didn't even know what it was. Yeah. I go, what, a WSI card? No, I, I don't. Do you have a CPR card? I didn't know what that was, CPR 
I go, no, I don't. He goes, he kind of laughs a little bit, you know. And I go, well, I'm, I am a good swimmer. If you could use an extra guy, I'm just trying to. He goes, no, I don't think so. He goes, what company are you with? And I go, oh, I'm with C Company. He goes, you're not in B Company? I go, no. He goes, well, what is your plan? I go, I don't know. You know, I still, I, then it's like, <laughs> okay, I get it. So he goes, well, I go, thank you for seeing me, and I'll see you later. So I, start, I walk out. I turn around, I walk out, I get two steps, and he says, where are you from? And I go, I turn around, and I go, Redondo Beach, California. And he goes, no shit. He goes, oh, my God. You mean Redondo Beach, the song in the beach, Surfing USA? There's a line in there where it says, Surfing USA, and they say he named cities. And one of the last lines is Redondo Beach, L.A. I don't know if you remember right, that. Right, right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Beach Boys. Yeah. So all of a sudden, he's like a teenage girl. I mean, yeah. it's just, I'm, I'm standing there. I'm not saying a word. I'm freaking out going, oh, my God. <laughs> he goes, do you surf? I go, yeah, yeah, I surf, which I didn't surf. Um, <laughs> he goes, have you ever seen, you know, he starts naming these big surfers, Dewey Weber, you know, and the guy from Huntington Beach. Anyway, um, and I said, yeah, I see him all the time down the beach, you know, and I said, my sister is a really good surfer. If you ever come to California, man, you could – I don't even have a sister. You know? <laughs> I'm just like throwing darts, like thinking, man. Please stick. He goes, sit down, sit down. He goes, he goes, I was just shitting you. I don't have anybody. He goes, you're in C Company, though. And he goes, I know Captain. I can't remember the guy's name, our captain. He said, I can talk to him. I think I can get you transferred. He goes, you want to be a lifeguard? I go, hell Yes. He goes, okay. He goes, let me call your captain and tell him I want to transfer you over here. Oh, he goes, he asked me, where are you working? I said, well, I'm a teletype operator. I work at the headquarters. He goes, oh, that's a problem. I said, no. I said, you know what? There's like 11 of us that just came up from Saigon, and they don't have a job for any of us. So they don't need, they're not going to miss one teletype operator, which was true. You know? Right, right. They didn't need us. So he says, I'll get in touch with you, you know, and couple days later he calls me and i'm waiting you know waiting to hear from him he calls me in and he goes okay i got it all worked out you're starting tomorrow you're going to train with whoever the other guy was and i i got the job just one of those unbelievable that's amazing it's just amazing it was amazing unbelievable so you, so you basically owe your your lifeguard job to the beach boys every time i hear that someone <laughs> surfing i turn it up and when it comes to Redondo Beach, L.A., when I told those and the, my friends, of course, and they they were just like, "You gotta be kidding!" Me. I go, "It was like he was a little girl, you know, and you know, just met Elvis Presley, you know." It was so weird, you know. That's and, amazing. Uh, he said, "He said I can come down there, man. It's so nice." I never saw him. I mean, I hardly ever saw him after that when wow. I got to the pool. Wow. Yeah. But. So you had pools in, in Saigon. And, and uh, it, so, I mean, what? In, in Long Bend. Or in Long Bend. Yeah. Most so, of the smaller places didn't have them. I don't know where else they had them outside of Long Bend. And so what were the purpose of the, the pools? Oh, so it was um, like uh, most of the jobs were whatever they were. Supply was 24 hours, not the same person. but mm-hmm. So there was a lot of people off all the time. Okay. You know, it was like a regular job kind of. Again, if something big came up, you did but they had day rooms with ping pong, with music. You know, they had EM clubs you could go drink. They had music at night. And they had pools because it was hot for just GIs on their days off. Okay. They were really busy, you know. But they were only four feet above. Just to be able to sit out in the sun and just 
for the GIs. So it's like a rec center a for, rec center, for yeah, the GIs. That's, yeah. Yep. I mean, it makes sense. You know, sure. your work, people are, these are, again, back to what we talked about, the behind the scenes. And it's funny, we I, we didn't mention what you did, but, you know, going from the lifeguard, we you ended up working in recreation. And so... Yeah, I actually was a lifeguard at the pool part-time there before I got full-time and also got done. That's right. Yeah. And so you built a career out of what Off you that started. that pool there, yeah. Everything yeah. I learned there. Oh, one, <laughs> let me throw this one last thing, my favorite mm-hmm. line. So... When we were talking to someone or, like, if we got a new lifeguard in, we said, okay, here's the most important thing. If someone goes down in the pool and needs help, you you put your hands around your mouth and yell, stand up, stupid, because <laughs> the pool was only four feet deep. Uh, it was just to relax. You couldn't drown in the pool unless you were a cat or something. <laughs> you couldn't get out. But, yeah, that, that was the training. It was, okay, your training's over, you know. <laughs> so what were some of the shenanigans that went on at the at the pool then? I mean, yeah, I remember in the book you said that, you know, during the day it was, you know, active, but at night it, it, it got really fun. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe something after we hours. haven't touched on yet, which everybody knows about, is there were massive, massive drugs in Vietnam. Uh-huh. Everything you can imagine. I mean, a lot of them from France, a lot of weed. When I was in at the pool, I don't know if you remember the old Ritz cracker cans. They're sure. big old crack. They were in tins uh-huh. mm-hmm. and they were big probably three quarts something like that you could get a ritz cracker can full of weed for ten dollars <laughs> wow. and the mama sons and the papa sons that worked during the day that did your room and stuff they would bring it so like amazon you know you, you ordered it <laughs> in the morning and the next morning the mama son would drop it off <laughs> and they had um a lot of speed freaks you know uh, whites i don't know if you remember back in the day here they were Benny's, white yeah. White crosses, they called them. Yeah, and uh, there they had this French um, speed. It was in vials. And I think it was like a, a three, a six and a half, and a nine. And the more you, higher you went, the more um, speed, more, you know, high you got. And what you did is you broke off the, the tip of the glass. You poured it in a Coca-Cola. You had to drink it really slower. It give you a massive headache. It's too powerful, you know. Hmm. So there were a lot of speed freaks, and you, you could tell the speed freaks, first of all, they hardly ever came out. They were really white, really thin, and they, because of the lack of nutrition, they had to get bumps on their skin and their face, mm-hmm. and we called them speed bumps. You know, we, were, we weren't real <laughs> sympathetic back when, <laughs> to anybody, and we called, um, they called it cocaine. A lot of people say coke, but it was heroin. Okay. A lot of heroin addicts, big time. That was a big problem in the States that they kept under wraps. Sure. Um, a lot of heroin acts because no one, I never saw anybody take heroin once and stop mm-hmm. after one time. Mm-hmm. I remember this guy come in, this kind of a goofy guy, you know, coming in and I saw him coming down. He had just come in country. You could tell because in Vietnam you wore fatigues and their OD green is a dark, dark green, looks clean, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, the longer you're in the sun, the lighter your fatigues got. So the lighter, um, your fatigues were, you, people knew you were in country a long time, you know. Yeah. So the guys that had the really dark ones, you knew they just got there. Because after right. a few days, they would buy some off somebody else. They didn't want to. And they were called cherries, you know, cherry boys. Because uh-huh. they only, so everybody <laughs> everybody tried to freak them out with everything they could, which <laughs> was easy, you know. And they'd just be wide-eyed, you know. And yeah. then we'd say, no, we're just messing with you. Mm-hmm. But I remember this one guy, I'll never forget this. He was walking down, and I introduced myself. And said, yeah, I've been here, whatever. And so I saw him, you know, he was up at the comm center. And I saw him one night and he was small. What they did with the heroin, 
They took a cigarette. I mean, you could shoot it, but you had to get needles, and it was easier. They would roll out the end of the tobacco and put in the, they call it cocaine, the heroin, and smoke it. Okay. Still, it was powerful, but it was so cheap, it, you know, it didn't matter because um, very few people, unless you worked at one of the hospitals, would, could get needles, you know. But anyway, I saw him smoking it one night, and I went over there, and um, again, I can't remember his name. And I said, and he had kids. He had married with two kids. And I said, don't, man, you've got to stop that now. You have to stop. I, I did everything I could to yeah. beg him, don't do it. Anyway, he, got, he turned into a junkie. Wow. Lost weight, lost touch with his wife. I mean, it, it really, that's an untold story. Now, again, the stuff I'm saying, again, to protect myself from the guys in the bush, you know. Yeah. A lot of things were different out there. Sure. A lot of them looked down on drugs because you don't want a junkie on your back. Right, you know? right. So they took care of it themselves. There were still drugs there. Weed was big. Weed was almost looked at as nothing. They didn't. That was like a, a, a nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, this is true in the bush too, in the jungle, and the guys, you know, doing the fighting is the the lifers. You know, those senior guys. Most of them call lifers. And they're career guys. They didn't want to piss somebody off that might that night be drunken on drugs. Mm-hmm. It'd be like pissing off your neighbor, right? And then you go to bed at night. How are you going to sleep, you know? And you've heard the term fragging. Yes. I think it's overused. It did happen. What does that mean? Fra- oh, go- oh, So f- basically fragging referred to, let's say there's a sergeant you don't like or a captain. You go into his bed, his room at night, and you throw a fra- fragment, frag grenade. They're called frag oh, grenades. Oh, yes. You know, fragmented. Right. And that, that was a fragging, you know. But if you beat a guy up, that was kind of a fragging, too. You know what I mean? That, yeah. was, that was, in other words, getting even with somebody for whatever. So, yeah, you didn't want to make too many enemies with uh, drug addicts over there. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, how, how did I mean, how did the Army deal with, with that? I mean, you, they, you got guys that were, you know, strung that's out. That's a good or, question, you know, because think about it. It makes total sense. We're talking 67 through 72, basically, you know, the, uh-huh. the height. There were no programs. Drugs were just really kicking in in the mid-60s, mm-hmm. you know. We had no programs here either because that wasn't a problem. There weren't drug addicts in every high school. You know, the old 50s high schools didn't have drug addicts. I mean, marijuana was around. That was like, oh, you're going to die if you smoke marijuana. But so the Army had no plans, no diversion things. They they had nothing, nothing they could do. They could put you in jail. Uh You know, I mean, they could throw you in jail, which happened depending on how bad it was. But for the drugs, I mean, pretty much they just... Accepted as an uh, unnecessary nuisance, you know? Wow. I mean, and again, there's exceptions to everything I'm telling you. Sure. I'm telling you my experience. It's Most of the stuff is general and true throughout, just a matter of degree, mm-hmm. how it was, depending on where you were and what you did. At night, the way the streets in the company area, the pool was by itself in the middle of a thing. That was, nobody came down there at night. I mean, no career guys, you know? Mm-hmm. I hate to say lifers now because... I'm very respectful of, you know, military. And back then I wasn't. And it wasn't due to them. It's just because we were young and that's what everybody did, you know. The situation you were you were dropped into. Yeah, and so and it wasn't a again, it wasn't like we were no one felt nobody felt we were fighting for anything. Yeah. The spread of communism, what you know. But anyway. Um even though you had a pretty cruise job, kickback type job, did you ever uh experience some of the casualties of war? Were you able to see some of the people coming to and fro? Uh... Well, yes and no, but not for what the reason you're asking. You know, everybody lost people there or knew people that were messed up or 
drugs or whatever. The guy in the front of my book, I, I changed his name too because um, he didn't want me to use it. He, he was a medic. And he was in Vietnam the same time as me. He was there before me. He got wounded. He got um, shrapnel in his foot. And it, was, it wasn't what they call a million-dollar wound because he didn't get to go home. But he got to pick whatever hospital he wanted to go to in Vietnam. Well, we had talked on the phone when he was in Vietnam. And because you were able, there were different ways you could get people to make phone calls for you. Um, he picked 24th of VAC Hospital, which was a, less than a half mile from the pool. So we spent almost four months together. He was in the hospital, and he was come down to the pool every night. Anyway, Ron, he was in the head trauma ward. Mm. And I would go up there and visit him because this is another term you don't hear anymore. Sorry, millennials. <laughs> um, the nurses were American women. No one called them American women. Do you guys remember it by any chance or ever heard it? Here's another one for you. So they were called affectionately round eyes. Round Sorry. Eyes. Ouch. Um, Ouch. We'll yeah. get letters. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I'm just reporting the facts. <laughs> Ask anybody. And there were a lot of nurses in his ward. I mean, mm. a lot of nurses. And he was worked in the trauma ward, you know, because he was a medic, so he had some of the training. So I went up there a lot, too. I'd go up there, and then we'd come down to the pool. So you came home in, what, 71? 71, yeah. So what, what, you know, we hear stories about, about guys coming home. Yeah. Then. What, what, what was your homecoming like? Well, I, you know, I'll tell you, it was simple, and I'll tell you why. And then I'll tell you, well, so I already knew about all those stories. Mm-hmm. When you process out for the West Coast, I don't know how far west, but you go to Oakland, and you go through all this rigmarole and, paperwork and it, it can take anywhere from 15 16 hours to two days it took me a day and a half just if they want to still mess with you even though you're getting out you think they'd speed it up but no anyway that's another pet peeve <laughs> um so i from the pool i i had sent home for my trunks and tank tops that was my duty uniform by the way red trunks and a tank top wow i got stopped by the mps all the time they finally got to know me and they go oh that's a lifeguard but uh yeah that didn't make people too happy either so i got a plane when i got there i had to you had to wait to get a plane reservation because you didn't know when you were getting out all of a sudden you're at the last step and you walk out you sign a thing they give you cash what they owe you I got out with $5,000. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I was in Vietnam 22 months. I didn't use any leave. You get paid for that. Mm-hmm. I went, $5,000 in 1971. Yeah, wow. I Good blew money. it fast, though. <laughs> <laughs> didn't buy a house, did you, you idiot? Anyway, um, but that's a triumph I bought. <laughs> you said bought you, a car. Yeah, well, and other things, too. But, um, but anyway, so I was ready for that, so... You had to, when you went, trekked out, you had to be in your dress greens. That's your dress uniform, which sticks out. If it was fatigues, people might be a little more afraid of you, you know, but not with that uniform. So <laughs> I got to the um, Oakland airport and went right in the bathroom, took off my uniform, left it on the bathroom floor. I wish I would have saved it. They're worth money now. Left it on the bathroom floor and went home with a T-shirt and shorts and tennis shoes on. Wow. So n- no. now here's the other interesting thing. Of course, you know. 
during that time, there were a lot of guys coming back and going in and whatever, you know, people you knew, people from high school. And so as you go to parties, oh, this guy went in, this guy, this guy got killed, you know. Most of the Vietnam veterans, I'd say 90% that I knew, you didn't come out and it wasn't a badge of honor and like, hey, I was in Vietnam. You think it would be, oh, wow, this guy's a warrior, whatever, you, you know what I mean? Sure. You'd go to a party and there'd be four or five Vietnam veterans not only would they wouldn't talk about it, you wouldn't talk about it. Now, if you were with one or two by themselves or people, your your friends, you would. But you just you just didn't want to bring it up because it, it wasn't. You didn't know who hated him for what reason. You know, it made no sense blaming the GIs. You know, but yeah, it was like people just forgot about it. That's why you know a lot of Vietnam books did not come out right away. If you noticed, right. a lot of the really bestseller ones were later on in years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a weird. It was, it was very weird. But Pete, to this very day, and Jeff and I were talking on our way up here how um, you went and you spent all the time, you did all the things you did, and some lost lives and limbs and those type of things. Uh, but yet, we hear about World War II and it's celebrated and won yeah. and the Korean conflict. But when it comes to Vietnam, you know, there's no drum roll, there's no fanfare. Well, you know, how did that make you feel to be? You know, I get it. It doesn't make me feel bad. It, they finally, about 10 years, 8 years ago, started more, you know, welcome home, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's still, you're right, it's not a big, people don't want to talk about that war. Right. That was just a bad war. I mean, Johnson, there were so many mistakes. It was so, I mean, just, they should have known six months after getting there, the top military brass going, we can't win this freaking thing. With a, we're running in the jungle, mm-hmm. shooting blind. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they, were, I mean, they lost a million and a half people. What were those, 58,000? What was it, 50? Over 58,000, 58, yeah. 58,000, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I did some reading up the last week, you know, when we were going to be talking, and yeah, the, the numbers are pretty shocking. I mean, there was 58,000 lost. There was uh, 300,000 wounded, 150,000 of ours. That's 100, a lot. Wow. 150,000 were hospitalized. Um, average age killed in action were was 23 years old. Wow. So that actually, so I would have think, thought so it was young. younger, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's, that it's, is young. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you think about that, and there's still 1,600. You know, the numbers fluctuate. You know, as, as right. you look up, I saw numbers all over, but the Pentagon lists 1,600 as still missing from the war. And yeah, uh, I don't know. That'd be a hard number to keep because it. You know, so many of them were left out in the jungle. I right. mean, you know, yeah. you couldn't pull, you know, they say, don't leave nobody behind. That's hard to do in a jungle when people are fighting, you know. Sure. You can't leave and then go back to the same spot in the jungle. You've got, you've got to be right on top of them to see them, you know. Yeah, yeah it was, um, it would seem to me it's higher than that, but there's no way. Well, you know, that brings us to today and, and, and the things we saw just recently and how history kind of repeats itself. And, you know, you, again, in reading the numbers, they list the Vietnam War as lasting almost 20 years. Um, I think we first sent advisors in in 1955, and then the the actual fighting went from about 64 to 73. But then in 75, they consider that the end of the war was Saigon. Saigon, fell. yeah. Right. What, you know, now you said you were in Saigon, and, you know, you were obviously, that's after your time in the military, but what was that like watching? Watching that and seeing, I'm assuming you knew exactly oh, yeah, where well, those places were. In fact, I didn't. I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't. I don't think I mentioned. Maybe I did. Um, the warehouse where I worked was at Tonsonude Airport, which is the, the their main airport, their international airport now. And there was, you know, buildings everywhere. There was a yacht, really big air airport. You can imagine, especially then, flying everybody in. But they 
bombed the airport, and that's why you see all these scenes. They couldn't fly people out in big planes, and that's what the the problem was with getting the Vietnamese out. Mm-hmm. They had to do it on helicopters, which holds 50, 60, whatever, depending on what type of helicopter it is. But, yeah, it's it's always sad. So, But, again, what was that like for you, watching that? You know, it's not emotional anymore. I, I'm more... It's more intellectual. I shake my head and just think of what a waste. I have one, I had one really good friend. I had two friends from high school, but Robert Nardelli, who was the first guy. He dropped out of school in 66 and joined the Army and was dead in 1967 before we graduated high school. Mm-hmm. He was killed by friendly fire, which they've actually changed the name to accidental homicide. Now, there's no more friendly mm-hmm. fire. Oh. Mm-hmm. They changed it years ago, but nobody wow. knows Accidental homicide, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So some committee somewhere decided that would sound better, you know. And, and like we mentioned now, you know, in the in in the news recently, you know, with the fall of Afghanistan, they keep liking it to Saigon. And there are some folks that say it's not even, you know, com- oh, no comparison. Oh, right. yeah. And there's some that say it's exact. What what's your perspective on? Yeah, on, you know, on that? I mean, you got two different countries, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it's the same thing, done in different different numbers of casualties. The big things that are the same, one is both places people are getting massacred by the enemy, and we're never going to know how many. And I'm not talking Americans per se, but the ones that work for us. You keep hearing on the news, Afghanistan, how many we left back with a green card. There's hundreds of them, hundreds, probably more than they're even saying. In Vietnam, these were people flooding the embassy that knew they were going to be killed. Yeah. And when that last helicopter left, the North Vietnamese were driving into the other end of Saigon. They were in there. I mean, a lot of those people were within two days were dead. They stripped off their clothes and ran naked because if they had a uniform or anything that said American or on it, they were dead. Yeah. But it's a lot in common. Yeah. I mean, neither of those conflicts... I don't believe Afghanistan either. I know Vietnam, it was never declared war. It, right. I mean, the, the Congress never declared war. And so right. we weren't officially ever at war during those 20 years. And I, I believe that's the same with Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I so. don't. They call it a war. Right. But I don't think it was declared. I, don't I mean, they're so. fighting. Yeah. <laughs> or they yeah. were fighting, but yeah. Not semantics, you yeah. know, call it what you want. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I want to leave this on a, on a positive because, you know, I know you and, and I know your career. What's some of the good that came out of your experience of being in the military and, you know, serving your time in Vietnam? And, you know, what do you, you walk know, away with? That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked me that because I, when I, for all I wanted to do was get out. You know, I was a young guy, just, I was, you know, your social life is number one when you're in your teens and early 20s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just, to, I had it easy there, obviously, but... Just to be away, forced away, being in the Army, I didn't want to be there. I mean, it's like someone just taking you away and saying, you're going to be gone for three years. I was bitter, but not where it affected me, just bitter in an irritating way, you know. And I didn't think it did me any good. However, tons of things that I realized were from what the Army trained you to do. Discipline, treating everybody with respect, sticking up for yourself. A community of brothers. I mean, I, I, you know, when I wrote the book, I found not eight or nine of my friends. You know, we're best friends. I mean, we're, you know, three or four of them have come out here and visited me. I'm still in touch with them. And I realized, I started realizing this probably when I was around 25, that I'd do something and then I'd go, you know, that's from the Army. Because I remember, you know, just 
where I got it. loyalty. Loyalty is another one, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would uh, loyalty to me is so important. And money would not buy, you know. A, a friend is loyal, does what they can for you. Can't do everything all the time, but if they can, they'll do it, you know. And and then and you hear the soldiers today talk about that, the combat ones from Afghanistan. Sure. The guys that have been out for a while that have been on the news a lot. And they say that's their biggest thing, their lifelong friends. And that's because mm-hmm. values, you know, you get your values from school, which you can't count on. Well, forget today. Hmm. But even back then, a lot of classes didn't really teach values. Some teachers did. And your parents. And your parents, hopefully you had good parents. But if you had mediocre or bad parents, you probably are okay. But the true values, you know, um, the military doesn't. They did it in a hard way, but they had to train you fast. Sure. They had to get you over to Vietnam, you know, so they weren't messing around. So I, it, it came clear to me. So I think it's a great opportunity for young guys that, you know, you'll learn a lot, you'll make money, you'll travel. If you've got nothing going, just hanging out on the block, I mean, I'm totally, you know. That's why a lot of people that, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but some reviews I've gotten on, <laughs> I'm laughing because I understand whether, you know, they read my book. Well, my book is funny. Because I actually had, for the most part, a good time in Vietnam. And, you know, it is what it is. That's, I'm not making something up or I'm not happy I did, but I did, you know. And Well, it wasn't your choice. You yeah, were- it wasn't my choice. I, I took advantage. That's why I tell people that, like, if they write me something or I meet them, I say, look, if you were in my shoes at 19, 20 years old, and these same exact opportunities came up, you would have taken them. Sure. Go to Hawaii. What are you going to say? No, send me to Vietnam. Again, there's a certain percentage, but it was not a popular war. The term "thank you for your service" always comes up, and yeah. you know, thank you for your service. Thank I you, mean, I, yes, I, I look at you, your generation. The you know any service person, no matter what they mm-hmm. did. I mean, you're doing it, you know, on the behalf of all of us and our way of life. And well, I, just... you know, and I, I understand and I appreciate that, mm-hmm. but I'm, you know, in my mind, there is, and I know I've said this to people and they go, no, you did. I go, you know, honestly, I mean, it's no, it doesn't slight anybody. The combat veterans in Vietnam were much better soldiers, whether they wanted to be there or not, they had to fight, had much more pressure on them and the threat of dying every day. Mm-hmm. They did way more than I did. I know we were both there and both in, mm-hmm. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, you, you can't compare them. I mean, there's no need to bring that up, but it's true. Yeah. Well, the name of the book is The Saigon Zoo, Vietnam's Other War, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. We didn't talk much about the sex. Maybe we can do that another time. No, my mother was still alive. And, uh, <laughs> I thought. Well, and uh, I, put that, we... <laughs> I put that into sale books. But, uh, there you go. There but... was a lot of, uh, uh, I'll disclose. There was a lot of sex in if you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and very, very good looking women. So. Yeah. That's that's the one that drives me. I got a lot of engine. you're not the first one. I've got a lot of people tell me that. Where's the sex? I go, well, my parents were still alive at the time. So. <laughs> How can we get a copy of the book, brother? You can find it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I think it was like nine million four hundred and sixty bestsellers last I looked. <laughs> yeah, you can get it no, you can get it on any any book site. Thank you, Pete. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming in. And like I said, it was it was so much fun working with you. And I'm glad we're still in contact. Yeah, that was a good run. We had a good run. We we really did. 
All right. Well, this about does it, folks. And thank you so much for listening. And uh, tune in next time when you'll hear myself along with uh, Jeff Trujillo. And just real quick, if uh, if you like what you hear, mm-hmm. give us a rating. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast and, you know, give us a rating. We, we really like the five stars if you like it. But, uh, yeah, that helps people find us a little bit easier in the future. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, thanks. Thanks again to Ron and to Pete. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I guess we'll mm-hmm. see you next time. Huh? We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.